Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Good morning and welcome to the Morning Briefing for Tuesday, January 30th, 2018. I'm your host, Eric Dane. Jake Hughes is your producer. And coming up on today's show, we've got a good one. Of course, we always have a good one, but today we're going to be speaking with our friend Justin Brown of Hill Vets in just a little bit, talking about the latest and greatest happenings on Capitol Hill as they relate to veterans. There's a big memo that may be coming out this week. Will that have any effect on veterans? Probably not, but we'll ask him and we'll ask him all the questions that you'd want to know about what's taking place in our nation's capital that will affect you, the veteran and veteran families. And then later in the show, going to have a guest from the Vietnam Veteran Memorial Fund. Yeah, they're going to talk to us because today is the anniversary of the Tet Offensive. Something that I first became familiar with by watching movies, Full Metal Jacket in particular. But it's something that was a huge, huge moment in that conflict over in Vietnam. We'll find out a little bit about the history and how to this day it remains an important event. All of that and more coming up on the morning briefing today. And it begins now as we welcome super producer Jake Hughes into the studio. Jake, how are you doing this morning? I'm doing fantastic. Eric, how are you doing? I'm okay. I wish people drove better in a drizzle. (laughs) It's, it's, It's amazing. I just, I don't get it. I drive... Uh, a slightly slower, but generally the same when there's a little bit of rain on the roads. You don't need to go 10 miles an hour. Conversely, you don't need to be one of these lunatics who decides like, oh, it's raining. Oh, I better speed up. Maybe if I drive faster, I'll go through the raindrops. So then it won't affect. <laughs> I, I just, I don't get it. But I do get that it takes uh, extra time to get to work. Like I, I left and it took me mm, over an hour, a ride that typically takes 40 minutes or so to get here. It's just, it's so frustrating. And I really, really think that the one way that we could best improve life for Americans, make the driver's license test harder and make it something that you have to take repeatedly. Like you don't just automatically get your license renewed. You should have to retake the test every, I don't know, five, 10 years, something like that. Or uh, you could base it on an age, but that's never going to happen. There are organizations out there that'll be like, nope, that's ageism. Just because someone is 97 years old doesn't mean that they're, well, actually if they're 97, they're probably their reaction time is going to be a little bit slower than it used to be. So that argument is there, but Hey, you know, what are you going to do? Yeah. What are you going to do? I say make the test harder. That's the biggest key because there are a lot of people out on the road who are fully licensed drivers who still don't know what the heck they are doing. We know what we're doing here. And that's Connecting Vets every day at EndricomsConnectingVets.com. And this, of course, is our daily morning show, which you can hear every 
Monday through Friday from 7 to 8.30 Eastern, and then replaying at 7 to 8.30 Pacific with fantastic guests coming. And we're going to talk, as I mentioned, about the Tet Offensive coming up later in the day, and also with our friend Justin Brown from Hill Vets, who's going to have a, you know, a litany of things to discuss, I'm sure. There's a lot going on politically right now. Much of it affects the veteran community. So all of that still to come. But first... Let's take a look around the world of news and information and stories regarding the veteran community. And the first one I want to talk about, Jake, kind of came to our attention early yesterday. Uh, I think it was actually Sunday when I first saw word of this, and that was the fitness tracker issue. Have you seen this? I have heard about it, yes. I know our own Matt Sainsing did a story about it. He did, and you can check that out on ConnectingVets.com. Now, there is... A program within the military to combat the uh, growing chubbiness of our fighting men and women. And in 2013 alone, the United States military gave out thousands of Fitbits. Those are these fitness tracker things. You know, the little bracelet that you wear keeps track of how many steps you go. It can show you a map of everything. Well, there's a program out there. uh, And the name is escaping me. uh, Strava. That's the name of the uh, tracking app. So it's a GPS tracking app. For your runs, it allows you to go like, oh, this is where I went, in case you forgot. I don't know, maybe <laughs> short-term memory loss or something like, where did I run today? Let me look at the, oh, yeah, that's right. I ran around the perimeter of the base. So they recently released a global heat map, basically showing where people are using fitness uh, applications, you know, using the Fitbit or whatever other uh, programs there are that are similar that are out there. Which is interesting. You look, and if you look at the United States, pretty much everywhere that there are people, there are a lot of lights because people are running with it. Uh, Looking at this map that came out, also seeing a lot in uh, India. There's a lot in India. There's quite a bit in places like Dubai, uh, Israel, but a lot of the rest of the Middle East and Southwest Asia, uh, very dark with a few little exceptions. Mm -hmm. And when you zoom in on those exceptions in the map, you might find that the shapes that they show look very similar to uh, your typical setup of United States military base or an outpost or anything like that, including some in areas that I'm, we know that there are people there. I can look, if you look at Afghanistan on the map, right up in uh, the North regional command North, as it's called, or as it was called, I don't know if it still is uh, Mazari Sharif where I was, there's quite a bit of activity there. There are still quite a bit of uh, military members stationed over there, both ours and other nations, including the Germans. So yeah, you see that base. It looks like Camp Marmal and maybe Camp Span as well or Camp Shaheen. It's hard to tell exactly, but you can see that it's there. There are also little blips of light in places like Syria and Iraq. Uh oh. Other little bases where uh, technically we're not supposed to know that anyone's there. I mean, we know that there are people over in those places, particularly special forces, Green Berets and such that are training people over there, Navy SEALs, running operations, things like that. Well, this map appears to show some of these specific locations where they are, which has people up in arms. Why would they not think about this? This is operational security. If you're doing anything that tracks you, you shouldn't be doing it at a a, a secret or, or, or classified location. And because of that, General Mattis, of course, now... Secretary of Defense has ordered a review of how troops are using those fitness apps following this this breach, as they're calling it. Here's the interesting thing about that story to me, Jake. You and I might not know that there's a base in, you know, wherever, outside of Raqqa in Syria or whatever. I'm not, that's not a specific thing that I'm saying is on the map. I'm just using a place that I know that's in Syria. We may not know it's there. 
uh, ISIS and the other people in the area, they know that it's there. They yeah. know that we're in the area. It's not, I would say, probably not a surprise to them. There are locations out there. They're going to know that they're there. They're going to know that the Americans are there. Uh, this this may highlight it to us, but I don't think on the ground it has that much of an application at all. Yeah, operationally, it's like they may know where they're in, but I think the, the issue may be they know specifically where we are. I think they probably already do. I think they already know where the bases are. I'd be very surprised if they're like, man, Green Berets are coming in and they're just taking us out left and right. Where the heck are these guys coming? They're looking for it. And the way that they work as a non-uniformed army, essentially, ISIS did have uniformed units and stuff like that. Of course, they've been decimated, uh, particularly in Iraq and Iran or Iraq and uh, uh, Syria, but uh, they're now growing in Afghanistan, as we'll talk about here in just a minute. They have the ability to have people just look like civilians, essentially walking around like, oh, and I'm just over here tending to my flock or just out here taking a walk or driving to see relatives. And they're looking for those things. They have uh, just like we have our satellites surveilling things in the sky. OK, ISIS doesn't have any satellites. They have boots on the ground. And I would be very surprised if they didn't know the location of most, if not all of our outposts over there, because uh, that's who they're fighting against. They're going to want to know where they are. Uh, I suppose it's possible. It just doesn't seem likely to me. If you look at it logically, they're in that area. They're going to have a network of people who are reporting back to them on things. And it's not easy to, to build an outpost or build a base really covertly and discreetly without anyone knowing about it. So uh, it's more of, um, I think, the optics of it than the actuality of any uh, operational effect that it would have. It's not like yesterday there were a bunch of attacks on these heretofore supposedly unknown military bases. So I, I don't know about that, but it certainly is something that you do want to keep an eye on. And right. There's no need to give them any more information than they're able to gather themselves. Well, from what I can tell from these maps, it doesn't give you anything like time of day. That would be a problem if it told you like, oh, look, this person's running the perimeter at this time every day. That would be bad. That would give people the ability to, to time attacks and things like that. This just gives general location information, which is uh, you know interesting stuff. And again, the majority of Southwest Asia and the Middle East is, is dark, with a few exceptions. Some places in Saudi Arabia, Dubai, the UAE, um, Israel. But in Iraq, you're not seeing much of it except for these little blips. In Iran, you're not seeing much of it outside of Tehran. There is quite a bit up in Tehran, actually. Uh, but then in places like Afghanistan, Pakistan, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, there's not a lot of it except for those little isolated spots. And you can kind of draw conclusions from them. Yeah. You know, it's it's probably going to be Westerners, as that seems to be who uses most of it. Because when you zoom out on the map, you go to Europe and you go to North America and it is just like it's lit up like a Christmas tree with the obvious exceptions of places where people aren't you know the, the rocky mountains right you're not seeing a lot of people running uh running through the rocky mountains just just a few weirdos that like training at high altitude but <laughs> overall yeah it's an it's an interesting story although as i said i think optically it looks different than uh, the effect on the ground might be where those who are not familiar with how the military operates and how those combat outposts and things that we set up over there operate might think like oh no now isis knows exactly where they are I, typically they're not hiding where their uh, their home base is uh, from the enemy all that much because you, you can't it's just very difficult to do locals are going to report things you know stuff like that so that is uh, a very interesting one another one state of the union the president's first state of the union address happens tonight and it looks like as reported by military times and others there are going to be several veterans and active duty military members in 
in the room for the State of the Union address as guests of various people. Um, there are going to be, uh, let's see, an Army staff sergeant who helped save a fellow soldier's life. It's actually a sail- sailor's life. We'll talk about that in a moment. During a mission in Syria and a Marine Corps corporal who became the first blind double amputee to reenlist. So those are among 15 guests announced by the White House Monday in advance of the speech. Um, they're not talking about how their stories might connect with the actual statement from the president. But the theme of the State of the Union has been announced as building a safe, strong, and proud America. Certainly the military plays a part in that. Uh, Staff Sergeant Justin Peck served in the Army for eight years, part of a team of U.S. troops conducting a multi-day mission with partner forces in Raqqa, Syria. There you go, place I just mentioned. Uh, This past November, his team was clearing IEDs from a hospital building when one detonated, severely injuring, and I do have to take... (laughs) issue with this fellow soldier chief petty officer kenton stacy uh-oh there ain't no soldiers called chief petty officers you guys didn't steal our ranks from the navy did you nope you're not calling each other like you know petty officer you would have been petty officer first class hughes nope. i would have been staff sergeant dame no those are different so this is actually a sailor not a soldier but that's okay um get over it yeah well staff sergeant peck <laughs> saved uh, Chief Stacy's life. So that one is uh, a very big one. The details of the mission had apparently not really been released before. Uh, but the other one, Marine Corporal Matthew Bradford, his story is a lot more commonly known. And that's because he reenlisted in the Marine Corps despite losing both legs and his eyesight in an IED uh, explosion in Iraq in 2007. So some very impressive people there. Then we have some other ones uh, that were not invited by the White House, but were invited by other people who are attending the State of the Union and have the ability to uh, invite them. Uh, One of which is going to be invited by Representative Joseph Kennedy III of Massachusetts. His guest will be Staff Sergeant Patricia King, a transgender soldier who has expressed concerns quite publicly to the media. I've heard a thing on NPR with uh, Staff Sergeant King there talking about their ability to serve uh, during uh, due to President Trump's military policies on transgender service members. Um, so that's that's an interesting one there. And then Senator Warner from Virginia, Democrat, is going to have Cadet Simone Askew, the first African-American woman to hold the title of first captain at West Point, uh, basically number one among the Corps of Cadets, uh, the big boss of all the cadets. Right. You know, just like in the in the active duty military, the the academies have a ranking system too, and uh, yeah, she has been named Cadet Simone Askew, the first one to hold first captain of the U.S. Military Academy's Corps of Cadets, and Senator Tim Kaine, Democrat from Virginia as well, will be bringing military spouse and entrepreneur Lakeisha Cole to the event. Randy Holtgren. He's a representative from Illinois. Republican has invited Naval Academy midshipman Alex Vandenberg, a a bunch of uniformed people who either are currently wearing the uniform or wore it in the past are going to be at the State of the Union address. Uh, There typically are some, but seems a little bit more than than normal for this one. It's going to be an interesting night. I saw an interesting piece uh, (laughs) the other day where a, uh, a young man who was, I believe, working for I'm not sure who he was working for, if it was like Campus Reform or Fox News or somebody, conservative news outlet, essentially, uh, went to NYU, New York University, and asked the students uh, what their opinion was of the president's State of the Union address, which, of course, had not happened yet. Yet they all had very strong opinions on, oh, it was this, it was that, it was awful, it was the worst. Like, well, it hasn't happened yet, dude. What are you talking about? Yeah, so, I love videos like that. Just yeah. catch, catching college students and their stupidity. Yeah, well, a lot of them... Uh, 
think things and don't know things. They think they know things, but they actually have barely even thought about it. So it's, it's, it's always very interesting. Uh, it, yeah. So that video is out there and a bunch of others. And you know what? I think you could probably go to, uh, well, one of the few more conservative campuses out there. Uh, they might be more up to date on what President Trump has said. But if you ask him about the statement somebody else made that didn't exist, you might be able to get similar responses from them. You know why? Young people. Not not terribly bright nope. at times. And I, and I mean that in the nicest way. I don't mean that they're stupid. They're I just mean, inexperienced. Yeah, they're inexperienced and they have preconceived notions and there's very little wiggle room for adapting <laughs> and being like, well, you know, uh, even if I don't like someone, when they said this, uh, yeah, I agreed with that. I disagree with this. I agree. It's just a lot of blanket statements. And I saw a lot of that when I was in college. I've talked about some of the interesting things I heard college students say, particularly those regarding the military, like the one who told me uh, that Marine Corps recruits are being waterboarded at Paris Island. Ah, yes, that, that old chestnut. She didn't know where Paris Island was. I brought that up but and didn't know that I was a veteran at that time and was like, they're waterboarding people and, and Marine Corps boot camp? Yep, pretty much as soon as they get there, they start torturing them and waterboarding them to teach them how to torture other people. I was like, I'm pretty sure that's not happening. <laughs> well, what would you know? I was like, well, where is Marine Corps boot camp? I don't know. Okay, well, there's two of them, actually. There's San Diego and there's Paris Island, South Carolina. Yeah, it's that one, the second one, Paris Island. I was like, oh, so they're only doing it at one of the Marine Corps recruit depots, huh? What, what, what do you know? Okay, well, I was in the Navy for 13 years. I worked <laughs> with the Marine Corps quite a bit. I'm pretty sure that they're not training them how to torture people. But again, college students oftentimes, despite the best intentions, you hope. That's 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 the hope that they have the best intentions. There are some odd things being said on college campuses yeah. in regards to veterans and odd things being said on high school campuses. Did you see that story? Yeah, I saw this one. This oh. one like I thought it, I thought it was funny how because it was so oh, you can tell the story, then I'll give my opinion. So this uh, high school teacher, who's also a uh, member of the city council uh, in Pico, California, I believe it's called, is a high school history teacher, it appears, named Gregory Salcedo, who had a student who wore a Marines sweatshirt. You know, kids sometimes wear that stuff. I think I had like a Marine Corps ball cap when I was in high school. I'd wear occasionally. Not in school. We were always told to take our hats off when we got in school. That rule has changed in a lot of places. A lot of schools now allow kids to wear hats, which seems very strange to me. But this high school teacher called out the student, made him stand in front of the class like, why are you wearing that? You know, the military is the lowest of the low. They're dumb people. They're not working in investment banking. This is their, it's their last opportunity. They've wasted 13 years of education and blah, 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 continues on. Well, the kid eventually sat down and started recording it on his phone, gave that to his parents. Parents gave it to some friends. It's It's gone viral since. The school says they're investigating the, the teacher. The family says the student has received threats and actually put out uh, links. I saw links to some tweets from people who either go to or did attend that school who apparently like the teacher very much. Uh, this Gregory Salcedo, whose nickname is apparently Sauce. And people are like, oh, he's the best. You, 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 we're we're going to go kick this kid's butt. Oh, okay. Are you? <laughs> yeah. That's, that's, you're going to kick, kick a teenager's butt and I'll make you feel like a big man? Yeah. I mean, or he's going to get jumped at school. If he gets jumped at school and you, you've, proven that this is a preconceived idea that you have guess what you're going to jail you're getting arrested for yep. this is this is not a game man but this kid uh you know he he told the teacher like hey this this was my my favorite part of it where he told the teacher the teacher said why do you want to join the military well it's a family 
it's a family tradition. You know, my uncles served in, in Vietnam and in Operation Desert Storm. Uh, his, uh, I think his father served in Afghanistan. So he said, you know, it's a family tradition and something that I want to uphold. And the teacher says, oh, yeah, well, if uh, beating up women was a family tradition, would you uphold that too? Well, there's a little false equivalency for yeah. you, huh? That's what I, I thought. <laughs> I, people was like, oh, were you upset by that? Were you angered? I was laughing. Because it's so over the top, it's every common denominator base insult you can have against the military. And it's so uh, provably untrue that I I found it funny. I'm like, this guy, I don't want him fired. I want to give him his own talk show. You know, (laughs) I want to hear more of his rants because it's hilarious. Well, I don't know if he needs more of a platform because you see, along with being a teacher and being a city councilman in Pico Rivera, California, Gregory Salcedo served terms as mayor of Pico Rivera in 2002, 2010, and 2015. So this is someone who has uh, quite a big platform and obviously holds these opinions of the military. The Pentagon has released a statement on it, calling the teacher who bashed overseas troops very uninformed. His big thing in this talk that he gave, which wasn't really a talk it was him kind of yelling at this student and uh and and degrading him for wearing a marine corps sweatshirt saying that you know the 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 troops are uninformed and unintelligent and not academic huh you know there are a lot of people who he would consider not academic because they don't have college degrees and they don't have a master's or they don't have whatever else who've gone on to do some pretty amazing things in this world whether veterans or not i can list off plenty of veterans who do but let's look at someone like bill gates college dropout that guy he's done pretty well for himself don't yeah you think? he's he's accomplished a little bit he's accomplished a little bit and then of course when we look at the military uh you know what what's very interesting is he was talking about the college thing and that's a big argument that some of the uh the anti-military folks made you're just not smart enough to get into college Look at me, for example. I was smart enough to get into college, but I wasn't prepared for it. If I'd gone in straight out of high school, I probably wouldn't have done very well. I didn't have the discipline. I didn't care and want to do it. After the military, me, like many other veterans, went to school, did very well, graduated with honors, in fact. So if I was a member of this uh, supposed unintelligent, non-academic subgroup that makes up these you know idiots in the military according to this gregory salcedo uh, explain that explain why i was able to graduate with honors why i was able to achieve at such a high level if i'm just some dumb dumb who was forced to join the military because i didn't have any other options oh well you're just an outlier you're 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 one of the few but the majority those guys are dumb dumbs well Mr. Salcedo, how about this? (laughs) How about the fact that veterans have a higher graduation rate than the average college student? Uh Uh-oh. Oh, Oh, boy. What about that one? Like this guy, I would love to have a discussion with him. I've seen some other things that people have shared out that I think may be fakes, uh, like things that one was supposedly a Facebook post that he made that had a bunch of F-bombs in it. Like, I don't care who I offended. The military are idiots. They're garbage people. They're blah, blah, blah. It did not ring true to me because if that guy's doing this, then boy, is he really playing with fire. Uh, From what I've seen, he hasn't made any statements to the media. So why would he make them on social media? It's very interesting to see. Um, It's it's not looking good for him. I don't know if he's going to lose his job. He might because of the way he acted towards a student. He, He bullied a student. We don't accept when students are bullying each other. That's a big movement in this country to kind of cut back on that when a teacher does it. A lot, a lot of people would say that's uh, grounds for dismissal. Well, I don't know. This is California we're talking about. They may just try to sweep it under the rug. Well, and this is a guy who served as mayor in the uh, the city of Pico yeah, exactly. Rivera and as a city councilman there. 
However, it uh, doesn't matter. Like the mayor doesn't have any pull really that much on who is and is not a teacher. That's the Board of Education. State of California will have something to say about that. Uh, one interesting thing, of an eatery in Pico Rivera. It's being reported here by the Press-Telegram, which is a local news outlet there. This uh, restaurant had a meal called The Mayor that was named after Gregory Salcedo. Well, no longer pulled off of Zapian's salsa grill menu and that is uh, no longer going to be be there going to be on their menu after these uh, remarks so an, a, a restaurant that was proud to be associated with the guy they've pulled their association <laughs> with him the thing named after him they could just rename it the military basher the jerk there's plenty of names for this uh, meal that they can have which uh, it's a plate that looks like it has uh, a little rice cucumbers some salsa some refried beans yeah, looks okay, I guess, but uh, I don't know what they're going to be calling it now, but they're certainly not going to be calling it that anymore. The owner of that restaurant says that they 100% support military service member and women and do not in any way support Mr. Salcedo's stance or his comments made public from his classroom. They have great respect for all who serve and have served in our armed forces, and I will remove that menu item immediately. So, you know, if, if that's any sort of uh, a forerunner, he may be in uh, some hot water with the school district as well, because what he did... I, you know, you can talk about his opinion. He certainly has his right to his opinions. But the way that he went about that in a classroom, basically uh, calling a student out in front of everybody, not very cool. And I don't know if it's very allowed. They're investigating that. We'll keep an eye on it and see what happens there. Um, he's apparently been in trouble before. In July of 2010, reprimanded and placed on administrative leave after a parent complained about his conduct in the classroom, said that their 16-year-old daughter had been threatened by Salcedo, uh, who in fact once said, shut up, Kelly, before I kill you. That's a fun way to talk to a student. Oh, yeah. Administrative leave in 2012 after a complaint he had struck a student. 2018 was this one. Um, you know, so this is at least the third issue with him. And if, uh, you know, you got to wonder if he uh, is alleged to have struck a student and kept his job. Well, that, that might mean that he's not all that likely to leave it for just bullying a student. But this one's gotten a lot more media attention than the last one did, including right here on The Morning Briefing. You're listening to The Morning Briefing and standing outside the studio, raring to go and ready to come in, Justin Brown of Hillvest will join us in just a moment to talk about what's happening on Capitol Hill. Morning Briefing, stick around after this. Helping military veterans stay connected. We make it easy. We're CBS Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting vets every day. Online and all over social media. Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter. At Connecting Vets. Welcome back to The Morning Briefing. It's Tuesday, January 30th, 2018. I'm your host, Eric Dame. Jake Hughes is your producer. Phil Briggs is also here and not doing much of anything because, well, it's kind of what Phil Briggs does. <laughs> gotcha. All right. We've already had a great show today talking to Justin Brown of Hillvets, talking about many issues, including the Fitbit app tracking military members at some heretofore unknown military locations in Syria, Iraq, and elsewhere. A lot of great information, and you can find so much more of it at ConnectingVets.com. Entercom's ConnectingVets.com works to connect vets every day, and our team is comprised entirely of veterans and military spouses at the moment. And if you go there, each and every one of us is producing content each and every day to keep you up to date on the latest and greatest news, information, programs, benefits, 
all sorts of wonderful things that will help you live your best life as a veteran. So be sure to check out the site, I don't know, 25, 30 times a day. And of course, follow us on social media. We are at Connecting Vets on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Now back to the show. We are pleased to have two special guests in studio with us now, one of which was here, well, not that long ago. He is Jim Knotts of the Vietnam Veterans Memorial Fund, and he brought with him, well, someone who's going to be able to inform us on some very important and interesting things on today, the anniversary of the Tet Offensive. She is Callie Wright, and she is the Education Programs Manager for the Vietnam Veterans Memorial Fund. So, Jim, Callie, thank you so much for joining us, and good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having us. So, Callie, I want to talk to you, of course, about the Tet Offensive and what it means. You are a history major. You're someone who knows a lot about history. The Tet Offensive is something that I think came to my attention because of a movie, a movie that also influenced the job I did in the military, which was Full Metal Jacket, which mm-hmm. centers uh, for the second half around the Tet Offensive in Way City and other places yes. like that. Uh, after that, because I am a bit of a history nerd myself, started reading more into it, and the Tet Offensive was a benchmark in the Vietnam War, not necessarily in a good way. It wasn't the most effective offensive as I know it, but it it had a a long-ranging effect on the war itself. So give us a little bit of the background of the Tet Offensive and why it's so important and why it's become this touchstone in in remembering the Vietnam War. Great. Well, I think one of the reasons uh, when you think about like why the Tet Offensive matters, you have to go back before uh, to November of 67, And that's when Westmoreland and uh, President Johnson are going around the country uh, launching their own success offensive. And they're talking all over the country about how successful um, the Vietnam War is going. And Westmoreland even goes uh, as far as to say that they've reached a crossover point and they're looking forward to the end of the war. And that's in November of 67. So in January 30th, when the Tet Offensive begins, January 30th of 1968, Um, it's really a surprise to the American people. Mm. And that's a a really important piece is that um, back home, over 90% of Americans are watching the Vietnam War on their televisions and they're seeing seeing the Tet Offensive. And it's really, um, they've been told at that point, you know, that the war is coming to a close, that we're doing really well, but that's not what they're watching um, on their televisions. And I think very interestingly about it is that the Tet Offensive itself as an offensive, not really the most effective offensive as far as no. militarily. Uh, you know, they, they the casualties on the, uh, the side of uh, North Vietnam and the Viet Cong far outweighed those on the side of South Vietnam and the Americans, the Koreans, everybody else that was involved in it. But the timing of it, it sounds like, is where it was the most effective, where people were thinking, oh, great, right. things are winding down. Then all of a sudden, January 30th, you know, as seen in Full Metal Jacket and other films, all of a sudden, here comes this huge attack taking place basically up and down all of Vietnam. So was that the case, uh, Jim, on the uh, the timing of it being the most important factor? Well, certainly the timing. Uh, it was a military success, but a political defeat. And let's just put this in perspective a little bit. Um, Within 48 hours, the beginning of the Tet Offensive on January 30th, 1968, you saw near simultaneous attacks in 36 provincial capitals, five of six autonomous cities in the country, and 64 of the 242 district capitals. Hmm. The battle or the uh, siege of Quezon had started a few days before. Uh, during the Tet Offensive, you're going to see the uh, capture of the city of Way and mostly the Marines uh, recapturing the city. 
uh, fighting in a way that they that most Marines had not seen up until that point, which right. was street by street, building by building. Something that you know the latest generation of vets in Iraq and Afghanistan understand very well. Very very tough fighting. It was, and very different from what you'd previously seen in Vietnam, where a lot of it was taking place kind of in more rural areas. This was uh, an example of the fight being brought into the cities, as you mentioned, really on a large scale for the first time. When we talk about the timing of it, Callie, was that intentional? Was that they knew that the Americans, that this might break the American spirit for continuing in the war? Or was it just a coincidence that it happened to happen right around the time that Westmoreland was saying things are going well, things are starting to wind down? Well, Tet had always been kind of an understood um, truce during, during a, or like an understood time of peace. Um, whether it was intentional or not in terms of what Westmoreland was saying, I think, you know, if you look at, Vietnamese leaders talking about Tet. Um, they're talking about it far before Westmoreland is doing his his success offensive. Right. And actually, while Westmoreland is speaking, they're marching down the Ho Chi Minh Trail, preparing for Tet. You know, and Westmoreland knew something was happening. They knew something was going on. He just got it wrong. He sent people to Quezon, um, and there certainly was an attack on Quezon, but it, it wasn't predicted um, as big as it would be in other areas. And of course, Tet is the Vietnamese New Year. And there are certain times, uh, you know, serving in Afghanistan during like Eid al-Adha and, and different holidays that took place where it was less likely that there would be much action right. on those days because of the holidays. So I, I remember reading about this and seeing people describe it as, you know, a sneak attack, despite the fact that, I mean, when you're in war, like, okay, it's nice when on the Western Front, the Germans right. are, are playing soccer with the uh, with the allies in World War I. Uh, that's not necessarily the norm. It's war. And there's really uh, very few rules when it comes to warfare. Should we have been more prepared for the Tet Offensive. As you said, military success for us, political failure. I mean, we were able to repel the majority of the Tet Offensive uh, as it took place. Again, the ca the casualties, you're talking like six, seven times more deaths on the North Vietnamese size than on ours. But even so, should there have been, I, I don't know, do you think because of the ex expectation of that Tet Truce, Jim, that it, it might have lowered the guard a little bit and allowed it to be as successful as it was? It might have, but as Kelly said, uh, the North Vietnamese were preparing for this um, attack for months and months. Mm. Um, it's easy to sit here 50 years later and say, well, our leaders should have known. All right. We've said the same thing about the attacks on September 11th and, you know, Pearl Harbor and others. Uh, it's easy to look back and say, how did we miss the indicators? Uh, we have to remember that this was a very, very difficult conflict on the ground. Um, after thousands of uh, bombing missions of the Ho Chi Minh Trail and other parts of uh, northern South Vietnam toward the border, um, the enemy was still able to use the Ho Chi Minh Trail to resupply their forces in the south, operating in South Vietnam, with both troops and supplies. So uh, on the one hand, you would think, yes, there should have been some intelligence, there were indicators, and they should have known something was happening. But that was one of the difficulties of this war is finding the enemy and separating the civilians from the enemy combatants. And so uh, from that perspective, very, very difficult to see the movement of these kinds of forces and logistics to prepare these attacks. But devastating back home right. politically because the American people, many of whom at that time, you know, still 
outright believed what the president of the United States told him. And at this point, the president was saying, it's going well in Vietnam, we're winning, we have defeated the enemy, we've taken away their capability to mount a serious offensive. Uh, General Westmoreland, a decorated World War II veteran, uh, leading the war in Vietnam, the American forces, um, and coming back to the states, going to Congress, uh, going around the country saying, look, we've reached this crossover point. The enemy cannot mount a large defensive again. Mm. And then they see it on TV. Yep. Extensive fighting, many locations around the country. What media were there in the country were documenting it and sending it back. And so it set up a dichotomy between what our senior leaders in the country, the president of the United States, and the leader of U.S. military troops uh, were saying publicly and purposefully with what they were seeing, the reality on the ground. Also marked uh, kind of a turning point in how the media was covering the Vietnam War. I know you know it's been referenced many times that after the Tet Offensive, Walter Cronkite, uh, who had right. been very supportive at that point, said, you know, this war cannot be won, basically, after the Tet Offensive. So uh, marked that turning point. As we've said, really a military failure from the North Vietnamese as far as what their their military objectives may have been, but in the damage back home, as you said, to the American psyche as it relates to the Vietnam War, incredibly offensive. And I think some would argue was uh, maybe a turning point in the Vietnam War. If things had been going well prior to the Tet Offensive, the, the change in opinion on it that came afterwards certainly had an effect on those serving over there and the public. Right, Callie? Right. And I think one thing to keep in mind when thinking about it is um, you know, they're, they're, they were given, people were given a mission over there and they went out and they achieved that mission. However, victory in the cities and those towns, um, unfortunately did not equal a secure and stable Vietnam, um, and a democratic Vietnam. And I think, um, also keeping in mind, um, people at home, like you said, are watching it on television for the first time ever. This is the first time a war is broadcast kind of in real time mm. that people are watching. And the rules have changed for journalists since Vietnam because um, of the way that it was able to be covered. It was you just went right in and went right along. And I think um, I think you see a lot of things on television if you go back and you look at clips of, for example, John Lawrence reporting on Vietnam for CBS or anyone else really, um, that if you're watching at home would be something that would make you think, are things going as well as people have been telling me? Prior to Vietnam, uh, specifically looking at World War II, the American media that was covering it over there, uh, viewed by some almost as a propaganda wing. They did not report too much on negative things happening. They focused more on the positive. There was kind of this whole like, hey, we're all in this together. We're all on the same side. Vietnam saw a separation between uh, the media and the government uh, for the first time on the scale that it was there. How about for those who actually served over during the Tet Offensive? We know we talk about the effect that it had on those back home, which then probably uh, in a circuitous manner had an effect on those who were serving over there. Of course, with the Vietnam Veteran Memorials Fund, and we're speaking with Jim Knotts and Callie Wright from the Vietnam Veterans Memorial Fund. You guys deal with Vietnam veterans on a daily basis and talk to them about their experiences and what they saw. How do they remember the Tet Offensive and the time following that? Well, uh, I think most of the Vietnam veterans just remember it was a very chaotic period in our nation's history. Um, it, there are a couple of things different about World War II and the Vietnam War. Uh, first of all, as far as media coverage, look at the advances in technology. I mean, oh, you yeah. could get stories back to the States uh, almost instantaneously or in a matter of hours 
where it could take days or weeks for reports to come from, say, the islands in the Pacific yep. about a particular battle. The uh, media were embedded. They, they went along with the unit they were attached to in World War II, uh, in many cases, uh, helping to treat wounded soldiers um, or, uh, you know, help defend themselves. In Vietnam, they had much more flexibility to move around. Right. Um, you know, so it, it's, it's a bit different than World War II. The other thing you can't um, contrast enough is the fact that World War II, there was a formal declaration of war. It was a total war. Millions upon millions upon millions of Americans were serving. Mm -hmm. And um, going back to one of the songs from World War I, um, basically said, uh, we'll be home when we're done over there. It was right. open-ended. Some people served for years. In Vietnam, the service members that were deployed uh, generally saw some of what was going on before they went. They went knowing they were going to be there for 12 or 13 months in the case of the Marines. Uh, and then they were coming home. So there was a start point and there was an end point. Right. They knew what was going on in the war and saw the media reports before they left. They got there and then they saw the media reports after. While they were there, it, it varied greatly what kind of information they had about what was going on in the war depending on where they were. Right. If they were out in the, the Central Highlands or the Mekong Delta and they're humping from location to location all the time, not a lot of, of information flowing from the civilian news media. Right. Uh, if they were in the cities, probably they got a lot more. Right. Um, so it, it varied greatly depending on where you were, when you served, what service you served with, and what job you had. Hmm. And of course, the Vietnam War would continue for seven more years, essentially, after the Tet Offensive. So don't want people who are, maybe aren't the biggest history fans to think like, oh, the Tet Offensive is a turning right. point. Shortly after that, it ends. It, it dragged on for almost a decade longer, but with certainly a different tenor in the conversation about it. Um, do, is there any feeling when we look at this historically that the offensive lengthened or shortened the war? I mean, it, it's interesting to look at it in that aspect to say like, well, it was a success for the North Vietnamese, changed the uh, the opinion back home, which changed the support that the military was getting, which changed how the military felt. Could that have actually lengthened the conflict? Could it have shortened it? Is there any way to know? I don't think there's any way to know. Um, but your, your point about the war going on for many years afterward is important because um, while the Tet Offensive has been compared to Gettysburg in our nation's history, as far as it's often called the high water mark, right? right? After that, everything gradually started going downhill and, and the war's end was in sight. People felt that way about the Tet Offensive. And even looking back, you see it is a high water mark of, uh, of a kind. But once President Nixon was elected, he actually expanded the war mm -hmm. and officially recognized that the U.S. was fighting in Laos and Cambodia. Um, so I'm not sure you could say the Tet Offensive lengthened or shortened. Um, because under new leadership in the White House, um, we threw uh, more people and equipment and bombs and other kinds of things uh, at the enemy uh, and actually expanded it into Laos and Cambodia. We've talked about it in context of the Vietnam War and what it meant for the Vietnam War, what it meant for the media coverage uh, specifically as it started then and has uh, led to some changes for embedded journalists and not having a 
quite the freedom, although the the locations of the I mean, like uh, Afghanistan is just not a good place for a journalist to be walking around free on their own. They're probably not going to make it out of there. Uh, Iraq, same kind of deal. Vietnam, a slightly different situation. When we look at it in an overarching historical context, what is the importance of the Tet Offensive outside of the sphere of the Vietnam War itself? Um, well, I think uh, at home, what it did was it propelled the American people in a way that was they had to look at what they had been told and then what they were watching on their television. And they became very distrustful or they started to really distrust the people in power. And it, the Tet Offensive is a start. You know, afterwards, you're going to see um, Watergate. You're going to see Nixon uh, leaving office. And the Tet Offensive is really the start where the American people are going to say, um, you know, we don't believe you. We think you're being dishonest and be taken seriously. Mm. And I think um, the Tet Offensive is, is kind of the beginning of that. We've seen uh, in recent years kind of a, a thawing of relations between Vietnam and the United States and Ken Burns and Lynn Novick's recent documentary. Uh, there was a lot of involvement from the Vietnamese side. What have we heard from them? in regards to the Tet Offensive. We've talked about a little bit about how the Americans viewed it, very chaotic time for them. How about the other side, this side that, I don't know if Vietnam, I would call them necessarily an ally for us, but have we heard much from the the Vietnam, uh, Vietnamese uh, war veterans? We have, there have been lots of books, there have been lots of articles based on interviews with them. Uh, there have been um, documentaries, as you said. Um, the Vietnamese, um, knew that the offensive was important and they they were playing a long game. I mean, many Americans uh, aren't aware of or have forgotten the fact that uh, Vietnam had been at war for many years before the Americans arrived. Yeah. Uh, they called it the French War, uh, fighting French colonialism. They were uh, fighting, we think, uh, the North Vietnamese were fighting for a unified country to reunite North and South Vietnam. Uh, and it was a war of patriotism for them um and so from that perspective they were fighting a very long game and their part of their strategy was to drag out the war mm. uh, so that the americans would get tired and just leave mm. and to some degree that happened although it took as you said many years later um so from that perspective they they knew that they wanted to make a political statement with the offensive even though it cost them greatly in military terms and so it was successful for them in that perspective i mean one of the things about tet and it really is a statement about our entire involvement in the vietnam war is that it was a military victory but a political defeat mm. I mean, Vietnam veterans, um, if the ones we talk to at the wall and in other locations, for the most part, they, um, they have some conflicting feelings about the war and the reasons why we were there from our political leader's perspective. Um, but most are extremely proud that they served their country uh, and that they served their brothers in arms and say that they would do it again. Mm. So that is sort of universal across generations of service members in our country, um, besides the political intentions or the political outcomes of a particular conflict.
Right. And we're speaking with Jim Knotts and Callie Wright. Callie is the Educational Programs Veteran for the Vietnam Veterans Memorial Fund. So certainly a subject matter expert on the historical issues of the Vietnam War, including the Tet Offensive, which has been our focus today on the 50th anniversary of the launch of the Tet Offensive. This is uh, a, a huge moment in history, the Tet Offensive. It's There are certain military instances uh, going all the way back to the Battle of Thermopylae that you can talk about, or more closely related to Vietnam, let's say Stalingrad, where, again, for the Russians, kind of a military defeat in many ways, the Battle of Stalingrad, where they just kept throwing soldiers into the meat grinder, but in the end kind of tired out the Germans, dragged it on into the winter. There are those moments in history that have far-reaching effects, long beyond uh, the actual battles themselves. And the Tet Offensive, which continued on uh, from January into February of of 1968, basically, wasn't it? And into March, April, and and really into May, there's some military historians talk about things tet one and tet two but right. really between end of january and may you know if even if you're not a military historian um in this country there are certain names that we all know i mean bunker hill mm-hmm. uh gettysburg iwo jima the battle of the bulge and the tet offensive Quezon would be another um so it's of the level of importance that it really is ingrained into our consciousness in this country as uh, a monumental point of change uh, in our nation's history. It absolutely is. And Callie, if people are interested in finding out more about this, we've only barely grazed on the surface, really. Where can they go to find out more information about the Tet Offensive? I'm sure the Vietnam Veterans Memorial Fund has some wonderful educational programs that might be able to help them out with that. Awesome. So if people are interested in finding out uh, more about the Tet Offensive, first, just like a general, uh, there's a great uh, book out that I'm reading right now. It's called The Cat from Way, and it's written by John Lawrence, who was a CBS journalist um, at the time. And if you're interested in reading specifically about Way, that's a great one. And then Mark Bowden also wrote a book uh, about Way in 1968. The other places I would recommend if you're in the district The museum has an exhibit right now Mm. uh, that John Olson, who was in Way, took a lot of very famous photographs that would appear in Life magazine. And it's actually a tactile um, exhibit. So if you are visually impaired, you can go and they have 3D images that you can um, touch and feel the photos themselves. Um, There's also an exhibit at the National Archives. That's 13 different episodes in Vietnam. And then also the New York Historical Society society has an exhibit on right now through april that's an amazing exhibit about vietnam and they have some different pieces about tet and on their website you'll find really extensive curriculum um our curriculum on our education section of our website um has quite a few different lessons and then uh this month this next month our um, teacher newsletter will be really focusing on different pieces from tet so if you sign up for our teacher newsletter on our education uh website you'll get uh, a whole section all about Tet sent to your inbox. And of course, the Vietnam Veterans Memorial Fund are the founders of the wall. Of course, one of the most famous monuments to fallen military members in our nation, the Vietnam Memorial uh, here in Washington, D.C. If people want to find out more about the wall, more about the Vietnam Veteran Memorials Fund, find that education website. Jim, where do they go? Well, of course, you're going to go online to our website at vvmf.org. VietnamVeteransMemorialFund.org, and there's all kinds of information there, Um, and uh, we hope a lot of people go there and learn more about Vietnam and, and realize just how much it's still affecting our country today. 
And when you get on the main page there, you'll see Get Involved is the first subsection, which includes Teach Vietnam that Callie was talking about. A lot of great information there for teachers, uh, the Wall of Faces, Build the Center, so much great work that's going on with the Vietnam Veteran Memorial Fund, and you can find out more about it at vvmf.org. Well, our guests have been Jim and Callie from the Vietnam Veterans Memorial Fund talking about the Tet Offensive here on the 50th anniversary of the launch of that momentous assault by the North Vietnamese that really, some could argue, changed the course of the war in Vietnam or definitely changed the understanding of the American public on it. We want to thank you so much for joining us today. And also thanks to Justin Brown from Hill Vets. Remember, the Hill Vets 100 nominations end this Friday. Go to hillvets.org or follow them on Twitter at Hill Vets. Find out more. Morning briefing. See you tomorrow. All-star closer, Kenley Jansen, we have a question. What's the best podcast of all time? Baseball isn't boring, baby. I'm Rob Bradford, and every single day I'm sitting down with the biggest names to show you this great game is the greatest game. It's my podcast. It's my passion. It's a cause I started more than two years ago and is now the most prolific national daily baseball pod there is. Another fact. So jump aboard the B.I.B. Express. Follow and listen to Baseball Isn't Boring, presented by Wasabi Hot Cloud Storage on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.